I'd like you to turn in the Bible tonight to the book of Luke and the 16th chapter. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in his illustrations, I have always thought, always thought, yes, because the first time I read it, I thought some of them were extremely peculiar that he would choose such illustrations as he did. And this one is one of the most peculiar of all because he chooses the dishonest actions of a dishonest man to illustrate a point. Now let me say that again. The Lord chooses the dishonest actions of a dishonest man to illustrate a very important godly principle. The reason he chose that is the principle that the dishonest man who did the dishonest action, the principle by which he worked was really a godly principle. And the Lord is making the illustration here that the ungodly, when they utilize those principles to whatever extent they utilize them, they work or function in their lives. Now it may end up the man is lost, the man is damned, the man finally his home breaks up, or all kinds of other things may or may not take place depending on what his future actions will be. But the point is that he utilized a godly principle at that point in time, even though the purpose for which he used it was an ungodly reason. Very self-centered. Now let's read this together and you'll see very quickly what I mean here. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. In other words, the evidence was clear enough to him that it looks like your job is finished here. And the steward said to himself, now see, he left him in power. Steward, the owner of the property, left him in power until he executed this. He just didn't suddenly walk in and say, that's it, you're out. There was still some doubt or something he's trying to work through there. But the steward was guilty of wrongdoing. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? In other words, he does have the evidence, I'm going down. I am not strong enough to dig I am ashamed to beg. I can't go out here and get an ordinary job, and I don't want to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And I said, I want to make sure that I've got some happy homes out there, that when I lose this happy home, I'm going to find happy homes out there. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And I'd be a fair sum of money. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. In other words, I've reduced your bill by fifty. You can see the man. Oh, thank you. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll remember you all the days of my life. I owe you a favor. Oh, that's very nice. Well, maybe someday we'll be by to collect that favor. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write eighty. Now notice the next word. You might say, well, the master of that servant ought to have said to him, why, you scoundrel, not only have you absconded with my money, and not only have you wasted my goods, but now in addition to that, you even reduce what these people owe to me, and you've 
compounded your felonies toward me. Now I'm really going to do it to you. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. Or as the King James Version says it, and that's a pretty good one, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. In other words, this man, ungodly, this man, dishonest, this man, a scoundrel, utilized a right principle, a principle of giving, a principle of reaching out to someone who was in trouble and saying, I, out of the abundance I have, though he had no abundance at all, he was robbing it. But still, as far as this person is concerned, this man, by taking what he had and giving to this person, assured himself a place in their future, if not in the owner's future. And I say to you, now knows the Lord speaking, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. Just use money, make friends for yourselves by this means. Make friends for yourselves by the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they, the ones you'll help, may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now notice this remarkable series of statements. Here's a whole dishonest series, machinations against the owner, trickery. I'm giving you something. You have a bill for 100, right? 50. I'm feeling very generous today. I will cut it in half. Oh, thank you, thank you. See, even though the whole thing was terrible deception, yet the Lord is making the point. He's saying that man utilize the principles of God better than many of God's children do. So the ones to whom the principles are given do not utilize them. And sometimes the ones to whom they are not given, to whom they do not belong, they stumble on them, find them, learn from the devil, even read them out of the Bible sometimes, and practice them and go on to blessing and prosperity, at least in the area that they want to go on to. Now, what strange thing is this? That God's children, whom God set up this whole universe so that they might come forth and manifest the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God to the powers and principalities and to the people of this world, God's children almost universally reject His principles, not His salvation. They accept this salvation, although many churches don't even accept that. They think it's works or some other method by which you go to heaven. But the great majority of the church, Jesus Christ is Lord, they accept his salvation. But they do not walk in his principles. Instead, they receive a whole different set of principles which do not come from God, but I tell you for sure, come from the earth, come from the world, come from the devil. And those principles are held on to, and the principles of God are never seized upon and walked in. Now, I'm going to read you something out of a book. It is a worldly book. It is entitled, Think and Grow Rich. That's right. The reason I have recommended this book to people... At times to read, not to everyone, and I tell people don't rush out and get that book and read it, although people rush right out and get the book and read it, that's it. But that's all right, I don't mind that. 
But this book in some places is weird. Even the man actually was experiencing a kind of demonic twist in his head at some, some part of his experience when he was describing something here. But I want to say to you that he described the principles by which you may attain wealth. And I want to tell you some of these principles. I just want to read them here before I start. He said, one of them, you will have to have a desire burning in your heart for that goal that you want to attain. If you have no desire, you will have no direction, no movement. Secondly, you will have to have faith. Now remember, he obtained these principles not by reading the Bible, for he was not a Bible reader, although he did read the Bible. But that wasn't where he got them. He got them out of interviewing under the mantle of Andrew Carnegie, the great steel man, gone now a long time. But Steve's the man who built Carnegie Libraries. Used to be years ago. You'd see him all over the cities. Carnegie Library contributed by Andrew Carnegie Foundation and so forth and so on. Thousands of libraries all across the United States, different parts of the world. He was also a philanthropist, a great help to a lot of people educationally and so forth and so on. And this man, Andrew Carnegie, said, I want to pass on what I have learned. But I want you to dig it out for yourself. I will tell you there are a set of principles, rules, by which this universe operates that if anyone wishes to achieve, they must operate by this set of rules. If they do not operate by that set of rules, they will not achieve very much in this world. Now, I will give you an open door to the wealthy men of this world. Go to them if you wish to do it. Will you take this on as a life work? He said, I will do it. It took him 30 years. And he interviewed literally hundreds and hundreds of these men, but approximately 100 are named here, the greatest men of their day. And some of them were so wealthy, even men today have not achieved their kind of wealth. But as he interviewed, these men said, how did you become, what principles did you practice? And they would talk after a while, and then after a while they began to get down to business when they saw he meant business. And they'd say, well, here's what I do. And here's how I feel. And here's how I think. And here's what, how my mind works. And then he began to put them down and wrote a book. And what he came up with, almost paralleling the Word of God, is exactly that. Principles taken right out of the Word of God. But he didn't get them there. They were things that wealthy men had stumbled on, or the devil himself had taught them directly, or whatever means they had come upon them. But these principles, then he got them all down. They're here. Now, isn't this amazing? That God has given them all to us in a book. We don't have to interview anybody for 30 years to find them. They're here plainly stated. But Satan is warring against our minds to keep us from grasping and practicing and moving forward in those things until we have implemented what Christ wants implemented on this earth. Now, I'm going to read you something out of this book now. And I want you just to listen. First of all, under the chapter called Desire... I was going to say some of the rest of the things he calls knowledge, add to your faith, knowledge, imagination, organization, decision, persistence, unity, knowledge from beyond human knowledge, and the removal of fear. Now, you don't, wouldn't have to work too hard and know too much about the Bible to come up for scriptures to, not just a scripture, but scripture after scripture after scripture that would say, well, that's, that's Bible. They, 
Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You can't accomplish anything without faith. All right. The method by which desire for riches... Now, many people have desire. But the method by which desire for riches can be transmuted into its financial equivalent consists of following six definite practical steps. Fix in your mind... Now, remember, this book is for money only. Therefore, it's a polluted and twisted book. I want you to listen for principles alone. Because we're not aiming, I wish to make one million dollars by June 17, 1984. We're not into that. But I'll tell you, we do have a, we do have a thing we desire. Do we not? We desire the church to come together and be one. We desire this gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. We desire the church to manifest the life and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to see the church fully equipped building itself up in love. We desire to see God glorified. That's our desire. Now, notice if that desire isn't there, then no matter how many times people point out specifically, you'll never make the move toward it. You have to desire it supremely. I want God glorified with my living and my dying. God, help me. That has to be there. Desire. Now he says, however, a man can have desire and go down to desire, turning into frustration and it will ruin him in the end. Here's how to turn it into practical manifestation. Fix in your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not merely sufficient to say, I want plenty of money. Be definite as to the amount. In other words, fix that goal. Make it clear. God says, build it according to the pattern showed you in the mount. I want it like that. Paul says, a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation. I know what the church should look like. And then he plants that and say, you desire this church built like this. And give yourself to the building of it. See, get it fixed. There is a psychological reason for definiteness, which will be described in a subsequent chapter. Determine exactly what you intend to give in return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing Isn't that an amazing statement? That didn't come from the Bible. Not from this, into this book. That came from wealthy men of this world who said, my principle is to ask what I will give in return for the money I expect to get. There is no such thing as something for nothing. That's from the world. That's from the ungodly. That's from the non-Bible believer. That's from the unsaved. Oh, I've seen a lot of guys running around giant holes in their shoes talking about how I shoved this deal down the mouth of that dumb pigeon and man, I pulled this thing off on that guy. But every man who has built any substantial amount of money realizes you might get away with that once or twice but you better know what you're going to give in exchange for the money you get. So when a businessman goes into business, he opens up an office, he runs advertising in the paper, he puts in a merchandise uh, in there, an inventory of merchandise, he spends money, he borrows money, he hires people, he begins to pay them salaries and so forth and so on. He starts off by giving before he ever expects to get. He knows he cannot get unless he gives. Very important principle. Establish a definite date when you intend to possess the money you desire. 
Now, a person may come short of it, depending on how much effort he makes, how well he understands the principle, number of things. But there should be a definite date. That's why I'm saying a year and a half. I want to be there. I want to, you know, went to Eureka two years. Now, someone says, well, you expect to get that all done in two years? I have no idea if I can get it done in two years. But I know this, that God says, my God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think. See? So here I'm saying, two years, Lord. Maybe he might have it done in two months. Or maybe it won't be done in two years. But I'm going to be moving toward it because I believe he is able to do it. And I'm going to act like he is going to do it. Create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and begin at once, whether you are ready or not, to put this plan into action. Now, write out a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Write it out. Now it comes different thing. Name the time limit for its acquisition. State what you intend to give in return for the money and describe clearly the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. Now he's talking about reducing it to writing. Now a good many people have no real goals in their mind. It's only vague kind of, I'd sure like to see the church grow and I'd sure like to see Jesus blessed and I'd sure like to see... But it's all like... There's no clear goal, no clear plan... No clear movement that you can reduce the writing and say, this is what I intend to do, and by the grace of God, I believe I prayed, that's a reasonable date, I'm going to aim to have that done by that date. Say, no definite movement. I tend to move with great definiteness when I'm moving towards something. And I can get knocked down, hit, turned aside a hundred times, and I get back up and... See, in person, what do you keep hammering away at things like that for? Because that's the way you get what God has called you to get. You keep hammering away until that appears. And if you don't hammer away, that's why this tape was, I wanted it played first. Those things weren't like, one day I get up and say, I want to tell you that you're going to stand before kings and rulers. And here's a guy standing before kings and rulers saying, Dear king, I want you to do this. Jim said it yesterday, now I'm there. Oh, no, no. This is like years when we say we're going to have churches all over the world, here's a little bitty group. Oh, well, man, it looks like the ranch is falling apart. It looks like we're going to go bankrupt. It looks like you better keep those 25 uh, dinglings out there because they're not going to go anywhere. And, man, you better do this and you better do that. We are going to have churches all over the world. We And then pretty soon, here's churches. God showed me we're going to have a publishing ministry. We're going to have a publishing ministry. Tried this, tried that, tried this, all failed. We're going to have a publishing ministry. God showed me we're going to have a publishing ministry. We're going to have a publishing ministry. And now here's the books. I'm trying to lay out a principle that can hurl back the forces of hell itself and give you the, thing, the things you're frustrated about. You don't have to be endlessly frustrated about those things. See, But it takes on a kind of a, a bent in your soul, not a bending of your soul, but a bent toward the things of God. All right, next thing here. Read your written statement aloud twice daily, once just before retiring at night and once after rising in the morning. As you read, please listen to this. See and feel and believe yourself already in possession of the money. Is there a principle like that in Scripture? Why, of course. 
Jesus said, when you stand praying, believe that ye receive it, and you shall have it. And this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know if he hears us, we have, present tense, the proposition that we put before him. Or the overtake principle. Obey my word and all these blessings will come on you and overtake you. The minute we start walking, the principles, the blessings are slipped out of God's hand and start rolling down the road behind us. There is no possibility that it can be any other way. Well, but the ranch is going bankrupt. You don't understand the church is in trouble. You don't understand the financial situation. You don't understand the economics. You don't understand. That's right. That's right. Though I understand them pretty well. But that doesn't influence me. I understand them well and I speak them. Or if I get a revelation from God, I speak that. But that doesn't move me. It doesn't matter if war comes, economic holocaust comes, runaway inflation comes, wild boom times, depression times. One thing I want you to know will be true. The goal will not change and the measured thread toward that goal will not change. I will keep moving toward what God told me to do. And I'm trying to put that spirit in you. See, to be able to reduce your goal in God. To be able to reduce what you are and what you believe God has given you to see and to be, to reduce it in some form to writing where you're forced to think about and say, then that's what I will give myself to do. Now, I want to turn over to another chapter here. That's enough on that section. Organized planning. You have learned that everything man creates or acquires begins in the form of desire. That desire is taken on the first lap of its journey from the abstract, that's where many people leave it, into the concrete, in the workshop of the imagination where plans for its transition are created and organized. No plan, no organization, no decision, no movement, then it will not take place. In the chapter on desire, you were instructed to take six definite practical steps as your first move in translating the desire for money into its monetary equivalent. One of these steps is the formation of a definite practical plan or plans through which this transition may be made. You will now be instructed how to build practical plans. Now I want to read. Slowly, but I pray you're listening. If you don't get it, raise your hand. Say, I missed that point. Reread that, please. Ally yourself, link yourself, with a group of as many people as you may need for the creation and carrying out of your plan or plans for the accumulation of money, making use of the mastermind principle described in a later chapter. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Compliance with this instruction is absolutely essential. Do not neglect it. Now let me go over it again. Link yourself together with as many men and women as necessary. to bring about the creation of the plan for the carrying out of your desire for the accumulation of money. Before forming your mastermind alliance, decide what advantages and benefits you may offer the individual members of your group in return for their cooperation. 
In other words, I can't just say, well, I want your help, your help, your help, your help. I want all the total servants. Give it to me. Give it to me. I want this because I have this great ministry I want to perform and keep giving me, and then I will have this wonderful ministry of mine. No, unless I think I want your help, and in exchange for that, I will give to you this. See? Now, if there's no reciprocity, and we talked about that one year, the reciprocal principle. Now, some brothers and sisters do not understand that principle. Many preachers do not understand it at all. Their idea is, I'm a preacher, give me money. Or I'm a preacher, I should have someone take care of me. Instead of understanding, the principle of receiving is the first give. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, heaped up, pressed down, running over. Men will give into your bosom. The reciprocal principle. Totally scriptural. Now, so if you're going to ally yourself with this group of men, the only way you can hold it together, men and women, the only way you can hold it together is to ask yourself what you intend to give in exchange for this help. And then to make sure you do give it to the best of your ability. You may fail, and they may fail. But as long as we see the hearts are right, then the group holds together. No one will work indefinitely without some form of compensation. No intelligent person will either request or expect another to work without adequate compensation, although this may not always be in the form of money. Arrange to meet with the members of your mastermind group at least twice a week, and more often, if possible, until you have jointly perfected the necessary plan or plans for the accumulation of money. In other words, meet with that group often, so your hearts are knit together, your minds are knit together, your thoughts are knit together. Maintain perfect harmony between yourself and every member of your mastermind group. If you fail, please listen to this very carefully. If your mind is wandering, get it right back on what I'm saying. Maintain perfect harmony between yourself and every member of your mastermind group. If you fail to carry out this instruction to the letter, you may expect to meet with certain failure. The mastermind principle cannot obtain where perfect harmony does not prevail. He must have been getting that out of the Bible. No, he didn't. He got it from worldly men who I tell you maybe socially would not want to be seen together, maybe in the natural don't even like each other, maybe educationally, culturally, all other kinds of ways, they don't even have any bond of common relatedness. But when they come together for the purpose of making money, they lay all of the differences aside for that one goal. And for that time they need to be together, they give their thought and their mind and their heart and their strength for the accomplishment of that goal. Is there a lesson here to be learned for God's people? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. See? Because the children of this world are wiser. They say, here's Napoleon Hill. If you neglect to keep that group in perfect harmony, you will meet with certain failure. See? That came out of just the world? That's a Bible principle. Yes. And he's saying, there are men in this world who do not have the Spirit of God. There are men in this world who have nothing in this world they desire but money, power, status. And yet they know how to achieve harmony. They know how to achieve unity. They know how to achieve oneness of heart and mind. They have worked at it. Keep in mind these facts. You are engaged in an undertaking of major importance to you. 
To be sure of success, you must have plans which are faultless. You must have the advantage of the experience, education, native ability, and imagination of other minds. This is in harmony with the methods followed by every person who has accumulated a great fortune. You think I could run this ministry by myself? Absolutely not. I couldn't even run Eureka ministry by myself. Maybe I could handle 15, 20 people in a fairly reasonable way if I'm really going to do what God says. But I can't even do that. Because it wouldn't matter whether it's one person or 15 people, it will take at least five gifts plus the deacon. Assuming that all those five gifts are also elders, it would still take the deaconship and other gifts to emerge, even to take care of one person or five people or 500 or 5,000. This ministry is not the result of one man's work. This ministry is the result of a thousand men's work and a thousand women's work, of which maybe 250 are here tonight. No individual has sufficient experience, education, native ability, or knowledge to assure the accumulation of a great fortune without the cooperation of other people. Every plan you adopt in your endeavor to accumulate wealth should be a joint creation of yourself and every other member of your mastermind group. You may originate your own plans, either in whole or in part, but see that those plans are checked and approved by the members of your mastermind alliance. Now, sometimes when I go into a meeting, people say, well, your mind's already made up, isn't it, Jim? You already know what you want to do, don't you? Now, we don't have that anymore, but it used to be in the old days. And I've had to tell them, if you really understood the principles by which I operate, you would know that I've come in here with my mind not made up. That it's very neutral, and I want to get it even more neutral. Yes, I have a bias toward this plan, because if I think it up, I think it's a good plan, and I'm bringing it for, to look it over, the approval, and so forth. But my mind is not made up, or I wouldn't be bringing the plan here. Look it over. Counsel me. Tell me what you think. And then when they counsel me, I, many times will change. Ninety percent of the time, I'm ruled by counsel. Maybe a whole lot more than that. I just picked the figure out there. Once in a while, I'll override that counsel. And even there, sometimes it's been to my own regret. But sometimes when I've overridden, it really has been a word from God. And the brethren have then turned around and said, then we're with you to carry it out. If the first plan which you adopt does not work successfully, plan, plan, plan. If this new plan fails to work, replace it in turn with still another and so on until you find a plan which does work. Right here is the point at which the majority of men meet with failure because of their lack of persistence in creating new plans to take the place of those which fail. What does he say? When you fall down, do what? Get back up, come up with a word from God again, move on again against the enemy. Never stop fighting until you've accomplished what God told you to accomplish. The most intelligent man living cannot succeed in accumulating money nor in any other undertaking without plans which are practical and workable. Just keep this fact in mind and remember, when your plans fail, that temporary defeat is not permanent failure. It may only mean that your plans have not been sound. Build other plans. Start all over again. Temporary defeat should mean only one thing. The certain knowledge that there's something wrong with your plan. Careful attention, please. Millions of men go through life in misery and poverty because they lack a sound plan through which to accumulate a fortune. I can say millions of men go through failure and heartache in ministry 
because they lack a sound plan by which to accomplish what God has laid upon their heart. Your achievement can be no greater than your plans are sound. No man is ever whipped until he quits in his own mind. James J. Hill met with temporary defeat when he first endeavored to raise the necessary capital to build a railroad from the east to the west. But he too turned defeat into victory through new plans. Henry Ford met with temporary defeat not only at the beginning of his automobile career, but after he had gone far toward the top. He created new plans and went marching on to financial victory. We see men who have accumulated great fortunes, but we often recognize only their triumph, overlooking the temporary defeats which they had to surmount before arriving. No follower of what I am saying can reasonably expect to accumulate a fortune without experiencing temporary defeat. Now, did you hear that? How many heard that? No one can expect to accumulate or reach that goal without experiencing temporary defeat. When defeat comes, accept it as a signal that your plans are not sound. See, blame only yourself for where you are. It is that person led you down, this one did this, God failed here, this one that. Check the plans. Check your own life. You're where you are because of what you do, not because of what someone else does. When defeat comes, accept it as a signal that your plans are not sound. Rebuild those plans and set sail once more toward your coveted goal. If you give up before your goal has been reached, you are a quitter. A quitter never wins, a winner never quits. Power may be defined as organized and intelligently directed knowledge. Let us ascertain how power may be acquired. Then he talks about the three sources of power, and he says infinite intelligence, in other words, knowledge beyond yourself, accumulated experience, libraries, and what men have put down, third, experiment and research. Knowledge may be acquired from any of the foregoing sources. It may be converted into power by organizing it into definite plans and by expressing those plans in terms of action. Examination of the three major sources of knowledge will readily disclose the difficulty an individual would have if he depended on his efforts alone in assembling knowledge and expressing it through definite plans in terms of actions. If his plans are comprehensive and if they encompass extensive activity, he must generally induce others to cooperate with him before he can inject into them the necessary element of power. The mastermind may be defined as coordination of knowledge and effort in a spirit of harmony between two or more people for the attainment of a definite purpose. No individual may have great power without availing himself of the mastermind. In a preceding chapter, instructions were given for the creation of plans for the purpose of translating desire into its monetary equivalent. If you carry out these instructions with persistence and intelligence and use discrimination in the selection of your mastermind group, your objective will have been halfway reached even before you begin to recognize it. Mr. Carnegie's mastermind group consisted of a staff of approximately 50 men with whom he surrounded himself for the definite purpose of manufacturing and marketing steel. He attributed his entire fortune to the power he accumulated through this mastermind. Analyze the record of any man who has accumulated a great fortune and many of those who have accumulated modest fortunes, and you will find that they have either consciously or unconsciously employed the mastermind principle. Great power can be accumulated through no other principle. Now, some people came to Andrew Carnegie toward the end of his manufacturing years when he was getting ready to sell out his steel mills and devote himself to philanthropy. 
He had built up a fortune of some $400 million. Remember, that was in days when no inflation to speak of and no taxes. So it was just that was money he had. And they said to him, Mr. Carnegie, how fortunate you were that you came along at a time the United States was young and steel was beginning as a new growth industry and you just happened to hit it just right uh, Stop, Mr. Please. Called him in and he had a meeting. He said, see these 50 men? He said, with these 50 men, it would not matter what time I came on the scene of history or what industry I had chose. The results would have been exactly the same with that group of men. See, he understood a principle. Now, what shocked me when I read this when I was just a, a boy, oh, maybe 21, 22, I was in college, and the book was just one of many books, oh, it's very interesting, you know, mumbo-jumbo, jibber-jibber, so forth and so on. Then later, I became a Christian, began to study the Word of God, and as I moved along, I pursued many courses looking to fulfill the Word of God in my life. And my life, as you know, came to much shambles and ruin and hurt and pain and so forth. And, and then somewhere along the way, I picked this back up again and read it, and suddenly the thing leaped out of me. Do you understand that the children of this world are utilizing God's principles and you are not? The way you think is completely crazy compared to what God's Word talks about. But you insist on doing it your way, and you have nothing. And yet you think God wants you poor, or God is angry at you, or God doesn't want you to succeed in the ministry, or God is working against you. None of those things are true. You are not doing what God told you to do. You do not think like he told you to think. You do not act like he told you to act. You do not relate to people. You have not become a peacemaker. You are not a coordinator of men's efforts. You do not work together to maintain harmony between people. You and your wife are divided, and that's when I was divided. You and your wife are divided. You and your children are divided. You're divided from all men. You see, the simplest, most wonderful mastermind unit, if you're going to use that word, or covenant unit, if you're going to use a Bible word, in all the world, so evident here, is who and what. A husband and a wife. And yet I want to tell you in so many marriages, even of elders, they don't work on having harmony. They don't work on good relationships. They don't make it a study and art. I sat down with some of you and I told you, you men, study your wives. Know what bugs them. Know what irritates them. Know what bothers them. You're going to fail sometimes along the way. But do your best to know what it is and do your best to... Maintain harmony for the attainment of your life goals. You want to see your children saved. You want to be able to give up portion to your children, your children's children. You want to have God bless you financially. You want God to bless you in health. You want God to bless you spiritually. You want God to bless you in your life's work. Make sure you and your wife have it together in harmony. Work on that principle. You wise, work on principle knowing how to get along with your husband. See, the Bible says a wise woman builds her house. A foolish woman plucks her down with her hand. Doesn't matter. Oh, well, you don't know my husband. He does this. He does this. But what do you do? Are you a mastermind builder? Are you a unity maker? Are you one who can look at the important and the unimportant and say, look, this is unimportant. I'm going to lay it aside for the sake of harmony. It isn't a big deal. My wife used to get bugged at me, and rightly so. Had a right reason to do that. Sometimes when I change my clothes, throw the shorts and stuff down to the floor. Boom. Like that. Walk off. Say, 
Ooh, that man. Ah, Finally, she said, what's the point of the big fuss? Pick him up, put him away. See? Now, I do things like that for her, too, which I'm not going to mention here. But I'm saying we've had to work at harmony. Don't always have it. Sometimes you have to sit down and work it out again. But when it's like, like this, then things aren't flowing. Like, oh, wow, everything's still working. No, it isn't. It's like we're at a standstill. Oh, and then harmony. Remember what I said? If the day comes I leave this earth, that somebody's going to put some epitaph on my tombstone, I hope it says this man was a peacemaker. Because that's the secret. The man who can bring people together in harmony for a common goal and a common purpose. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. See, this principle of unity. These principles. Now, I say once again, the astounding thing about this is this man did not get these principles out of the Word of God. I wish he had. I almost wish he'd have said, I read them out of the Bible. I reject Jesus. I don't see him as my Savior. But I got him. But he didn't. He got them from worldly men who have nothing to do with the Bible either, for the most part. But this is the way they live. This is the way they think. This is the way they act toward each other for the accumulation of something unrighteous mammon. Here we have the greatest thing in all the universe to accomplish. The glorifying of God on this earth. The filling of this earth with the glory of of the Lord's name. Of reaching out to the ends of the earth so that every creature has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of making sure that this world is evangelized thoroughly and completely. That the church is brought together in unity. That this church manifests the life and nature of Jesus. And yet I tell you something. We're trying to do it by principles that we learned in the world. Because we haven't spent the time studying out and saying, how do I apply that principle? And if I fail, I will come up with another application. If I fail, I will try again. If I fail, I will try again. If I fail, and I will keep on trying until I have learned to put those principles into full operation in my life. Now see, if we do that, then I wish to tell you that everything that God says in his word about you will come to pass in your life. I do not expect to be a failure. Because I tell you, to the best of my ability, I apply these principles. And when I fall flat on my face, I get back up. You see, part of the reason why I'm speaking to you like this and saying to you, I want your counsel. I want you to understand what I'm doing. I want you to know why I'm in Eureka. But I want you to counsel me. So that even if we do have a disagreement, it's not a break in harmony. Nothing frightens me so bad as the word splits, schisms, divisions, separation. Oh God. Pull this together, oh God. Because I know as long as we're together, not all the devils in hell are not all the devils in the heavenlies. To stop this body of people from fulfilling everything that God has given me to speak to you. It'll be done throughout this earth.